On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. And welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with your host, Brent Mikosh. Brent, good to be with you again. What you got going on this time around? Well, let me tell you what I did this morning. I woke up, turned on the lights in my house, and fortunately, fortunately they went on. Had some breakfast. I got in my vehicle, started the engine up, drove here to the office. I've walked into my office here. I've had my computer fired up all day. We got we live in the desert, so we got air conditioning running. We've got the lights are on, the computers are on, the phones are on. It's all good. But here's the one thing that I really consider every day. I'm very passionate about the energy business. I think it's a it's a business that has kind of been a little bit of crosshairs for people lately. And I think that they, you know, you need to consider that that a lot of our modern life, particularly here, not just in the West, but around the world, really. It depends upon cheap and abundant energy. You know, I turn on my car, I need a full gas tank. You, you turn on your lights, the, the power plant, whether it's running on oil or whether it's running on natural gas or nuclear or coal, even in some cases, you, you know, you, you need a society as, as advanced as ours needs cheap and abundant energy. And so it's an area I'm really interested in. I've got a great guest today. I've got David Messler. As David Messler, he's an oil industry veteran. He's he's worked for major companies throughout his career. He's got a thirty-eight career, thirty-eight year career. Uh, he's centered in Texas right now, but I think we're gonna we're gonna learn a little later on this in this conversation that he's got quite a bit more experience as I learned when I did some research on this. Uh, he's a contributor to OilPrice.com. I've read some of his work on Seeking Alpha, and he's just um, he's he's a really uh, a guy that's really deep in this business has a lot of insights to offer. So we're gonna talk about some great stuff today. So with that David. Thank you for joining us. Is there anything you want to add to my introduction? Sure. Glad to do it, Brent. Appreciate your having me uh, uh, on your podcast. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, the, the oil field has been my uh, the bulk of my uh, working career since I got out of the military in, in 1977. I finished up college, and then in 81, I fell into the, uh, into the oil patch. And um, spent uh, most of that time working completions, which uh, you know I might I might define a little bit as we go along. There's you know the half half of the job is making the hole, and then the other half is figuring out what you're going to do with the hole once you once you've made it, and that's that's the completions phase. So I've been a completion specialist my entire time, and and. Uh, Directly or indirectly, worked for Schlumberger most of that most of that time. Uh, knocked around the world a, a good bit uh, as a drilling fluids specialist, completion fluids, clear brines, uh, and then uh, have it just basically uh, you know in the early two thousands I I uh, worked in house with VP and. Then I went down to Rio de Janeiro and worked in-house with, with Shell on one of their deep water projects. Uh, in Brazil, I've worked the North Sea. I've worked down in Australia. You can't, you almost, in fact, you would have to go down to Antarctica to find a continent that I haven't at least changed a plane on. 
So my my background uh, is is uh, is an area of specialization called reservoir uh, drilling fluids, which are purpose-built fluids designed to minimally impact uh, the reservoir as it's drilled when an operator is planning an open hole completion. And uh, that, uh, that kind of finished up my career uh, in 2015, the downturn uh, got me. Uh, I was only 62 at the time and I said, you know, I'm not quite ready to hang up my spurs. So I started a training academy to teach young engineers how to design reservoir drilling fluids and, and attendant uh, chemistries that uh, go along with that. And then I've also done some consulting and then started my career writing articles on oil and gas companies uh, uh, and along that line. So that's me in a two or three minute nutshell. Well, I read a bunch of your work, obviously, on, on Seeking Alpha. You've been on there, uh, oilprice.com. You're a contributor yeah. there as well. And, uh, yeah, I guess a good place to start is looking at the current state of the industry. You mentioned the downturn in 2015. Obviously had you know, a huge degree of investment that kind of ended about 10 years or so ago. And now we're looking at sort of the repercussions of that. You had a few things where you, know, you don't have a lot of new capital moving into this space right now. Uh, a lot of the ESG constraints have, have for sure put the brakes on development as well. In, in, how would you summarize what the current state of, of the oil patch is right now, specifically? And I might, I guess my my view of your of your knowledge base here was, was was far too limited because you're telling me all these places around the world that you worked. And a lot of the stuff that I've read that you've written is on the Permian, so yeah. we can kind of, we can kind of start there and move out. What's what's the state of the industry right now here in the U.S. and around the world? Well, we're you know in a fairly mature. A stage of consolidation. You, you almost can't uh, pick up a, or open a link. Nobody picks up a paper anymore. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Where you don't read about one oil company buying out another oil company either uh, through a share share exchange or you know paying out a private equity firm to uh, to get their property. And the the driver behind this is the um, you know, we're about 15 years in into the shale. You know, I guess I'll call it a miracle because, you know, for 100 years, people drilled through shale uh, and then put it behind casing because they didn't know what to do with it. They knew there was oil and gas, but the technology had not uh, evolved to the state where they could do anything about it. Horizontal drilling and fracturing solved that to a large extent and was proved out in the early 2000s, probably beginning in 2008. If you go back to 2006, uh, there was about uh, a million barrels a day of uh, U.S. onshore production. It had just been falling year after year because the the best spots had, had been drilled up. And uh, with uh, horizontal drilling, you can start to see that the it, it climbs year after year. There's this big influx of drilling rigs. At one time, there was close to 5,000 rigs turning to the right in the various shale basins. Uh, and uh, then, you know, when when pricing falls, you lay down the rigs and, and try and evaluate where you are in terms of the, the, the price that you can get and the amount of money you can spend and uh, then go back to drilling when things uh, look, look a little better. But uh, today, you know, uh, on the uh, on the financial side, companies are jockeying to get uh, 
the best rock to get the best drillable locations. And I guess while we're talking about the Permian, and if I digress too much, please get me back on point here. I sometimes will go off on tangents that I get interested in thinking everybody else will be interested and uh, lose track of where I am. Uh, that's called a senior moment, uh, but, uh, or, or it's or, called a heck of a lot of knowledge that you're trying to convey. Uh, so. <laughs> and thank you for that. That's very yeah. generous, but the Permian is the Permian because of the way that, uh, it, it, uh, was laid down geologically about 300 million years ago. We have these, these rich, uh, sediments that were, uh, accumulated and, and what geologists call a lacustrine type setting. And that's a very shallow uh, marine environment that uh, is, is uh, uh, sustained by uh, wind-driven and water-driven sediments that do not experience a lot of turbulence or mixing as they settle to the bottom. And that, that's where we have the shale layers that, that come from now as these sediments accumulated over time, they become compacted, uh, and uh, the the Permian has the uh, the Wolf Camp A, B, C, and D uh, benches, as well as the uh, Bone Spring upper and lower. Those are the primary targets for oil companies. So the beauty of the Permian Basin is that an operator can drill a a, a lateral well. It can have multiple uh, targets from a, a single uh, single pad that they use to drill from, and uh, so it, it it greatly increases the economics of uh, drilling to have that type of of um, the optionality. I guess is the term uh, available. Do do we complete in the Wolf Camp A? Do we also complete in the Wolf Camp B? Uh, or do we just save one for later on? So the way I'm visualizing this uh, for for a layperson like myself, you're talking one wellhead basically, but then you have the ability to drill it down right. and branch it out. At it's called a multilateral. Somewhere. Got it. And you Got see it. a lot of that. Uh, there's, there's several ways of of going about this, but that's the optionality that the Permian gives you, and then you have the cube style of development where in order to minimize uh, well harmonics, and that is the impact that drawing on one well has drawing on an adjacent well, you may put several wells with spacing in the Wolf Camp A, several in the Wolf Camp B, and uh, have a cube style of development uh, in that fashion. And now what's the state of the industry there now? Because I know my understanding in the past, obviously, you know, the old business has been a lot of boom and bust. You know, through the 1970s into the early 1980s, and then of course we had we had another one uh, here wow. in the middle of the last decade. How do things stand right now? Because you know we're seeing oil prices are beginning to surge again, but we're well off the highs that we were at just a couple of years ago. What's what's the what's the the feel there now? Oil companies are much healthier than they were five years ago. You know the uh, the previous uh, model was to borrow money pick up as many rigs as you could possibly uh, obtain. Uh, rig building was going through a quite a, uh, quite a, uh, a new generation as well. And just punch a bunch of holes in the ground, increase production 15 or 20% uh, 
uh, compounded annual rate of growth. Uh, CAGR was always a, a term that everybody used in their in their uh, proxy materials. And the um, every all the uh, cash flow went to uh, operations to uh, to capex. And then you know investors were not getting much in the way of return. If you go back and, and look at, at companies, uh, Devon, PXD, whatever, they had very paltry, you know, di dividends. They weren't buying back their stock. They, everything was going into the ground. And then the Great Reset uh, came along in the uh, in the late teens, eighteen nineteen, uh, where the balance sheets were bloated and and. Uh, the uh, the banks who were had no problem funding uh, shale at the time said hey you know we, we need to return some capital and so it set about a a new mindset uh, and then we had we hit a bottom there in 2020 and then things began to rapidly expand from there and by 2022 companies were announcing all these shareholder payouts and and uh, capital uh, return uh, that you know made them attractive investments. So they were going from a growth type investment to a yield type investment. Although investors are finding out now that chasing yield can can uh, can be risky. But your your core question is the state of the industry, and um, what's happening is 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 big companies are gobbling up little companies. That what happens in, in a mature phase of an industry is. There's just too much competition. There's too many companies out there. The one thing about shale, and, and I'll try and tick them off about four or five years ago, I came up with a five point uh, reference list of, of what it would take to be a long-term survivor in the shale business. And it, it was you know being low cost producer, uh, being able to scale your uh, operation, uh, you know, uh, superior logistics. Uh, but that was all underpinned by having the absolute best rock. And I could I could uh, spend the entire hour talking to you about why certain sections of the uh, Permian Basin up in Lee County, New Mexico, uh, and uh, Loving County, Texas, uh, the the thickness of the reservoirs is many times as as you know, the way these things accumulate, they're somewhat lenticular. So you get out beyond these core areas in these counties and the sediments get much thinner. So the op the opportunity is uh, for, for, for to make big wells is less. So you, you see companies trying to accumulate what uh, are termed all these tier one locations. You may have heard that term uh, before. And, and that, that describes, you know, a, a, uh, an asset with, you know, good total organic carbon content, a permeability. Permeability is is the natural ability of rock to flow fluids, and uh, a porosity, which is related uh, to that. And uh, they, these are the wells that will cost the least amount to drill, but deliver uh, the greatest amount of return. So that's your tier one, and is probably. Uh, best described is is the Wolf Camp A and the Upper Bone Spring, uh, and uh, what what's happened over the last couple of years? Two things happened with the oil price below sixty dollars a barrel. Companies brought forward 
a lot of their tier one drilling locations, uh, if, if you think about it, when the oil price is, is low and you want to return on your uh, capital investment, you, you drill your best rock. And so now with oil prices higher, they're looking back at their tier two and tier three uh, because they've become economic. So we're drilling uh, some tier two and tier three rock. But in the back of their minds, oil companies would love to have as much tier one rock as they can get. So this is really what's driving the, the M&A cycle that's underway right now. You know, if you Exxon uh, Mobil uh, and, and PXD, uh, Pi, excuse me, Pioneer, I, I, I talk in, in three letter. Uh, <laughs> we, we know most of the symbols, so you yeah, can definitely I use stock, stock symbols. symbols. I, anyway, but uh, so they, they've agreed to, to tie up. And if you dig into the reason why that Pioneer has, you know, top tier uh, operating margin, top tier uh, recycle ratio, top tier uh, ROAC, uh, and and Exxon, you know, they they made this big splash a couple of years ago. Oh, we're going to grow to a million barrels a day in the Permian. They're about halfway there. So Darren Woods has has a problem. You know, he he said, hey, you know, by 2027, we're going to be producing a million barrels a day. Well, you can get there by drilling, or you can get there by drilling on Wall Street. Right. Uh, and uh, that's 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 what we have. But to, to summarize the state of the industry, it's in a consolidation phase that's going to continue on for a while. Now, let me ask you this. And one thing we can't do, I've got a wonderful compliance part department with Raymond James, my broker dealer, but we can't make recommendations for you know, individual securities and, and, and things like that. However, no. you um, you wrote a very interesting article on Post, I guess, a week or so back on looking at, you mentioned Pioneer, you also mentioned Devon Energy. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've tried to figure out, quite frankly, is there's been a big discrepancy in how the performance of those two stocks has been over the course of the year. Devon is obviously, they've both been down and it's been tough being a, being a an energy right. investor this year, but uh, Devin's significantly underperformed. What, what's your take on that? Well, it's interesting. Um, without making any sort of recommendation at all, because uh, I'm not licensed to do that, Devin, uh, Devin has some great rock and they're making terrific wells, but their Delaware Basin, which is a sub-basin of, uh, of the Permian, is, uh, is, is very gassy. And if you look at gas prices, they've really suffered Collapsed, uh, this yeah. year, right? So that's really impacted their profitability uh, as compared to companies with like Pioneer with a more oil-weighted uh, basket of, of production. Yeah, Devin, Devin is, uh, is uh, you know, they, they have that problem out in the Delaware, you know, the, the gas cut's pretty high and it's getting higher if you... If you look at the Permian Basin, if you uh, EIA report, uh, the drilling productivity report, which comes out monthly, uh, breaks down the uh, oil and gas production of the eight major shale basins. And if you if you if you look at that report, it comes out Monday, as a matter of fact, uh, you'll see that the Permian over the last five years has gone from about uh, a 12 BCF a day to 23 BCF a day. Uh, it's 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 grown faster than any other basin, and it it may someday challenge the uh, 
Marcellus for the uh, amount of gas being produced daily. So, it, it, you know, the, and this is just a function of, of the tier of rock. You know, the, the, the tier one rock that trended to oil, tier two rock is deeper and hotter. And when you look at a, uh, a, a thermograph of uh, hydrocarbons, as you increase the temperature, they start to turn to gas. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's very predictable. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way. It's an interesting thing to consider in terms of what's the byproduct, because obviously you're going after the oil, but yeah. uh, for years we've flared off gas, and now there's some value to it. But the value, obviously, in the gas side has been, been down significantly over the past year or so. Let me ask you this. So what, you know, we've got... Uh, Current administration is probably a little less fr- friendly toward fossil fuels than, than previous administrations. From a regulatory standpoint, how much of an impact has that had on uh, the oil and gas business in Texas and beyond? Well, you know, it, it varies company to company, uh, and and it, it has more of an impact in New Mexico than it does uh, in Texas because uh, most of the operators in Texas are not on government land, whereas right. in New Mexico they're on government land. Uh, so that 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 gets a bit tricky, and and of course you, you probably uh, you you framed it in a very kind and gentle uh, fashion when you say they're less friendly. Uh, some might say antagonistic, but let's not go there. <laughs> So yeah, it, it it's it's a concern, and it, it's part of the reason that you're not seeing more of a response. You know, everybody said, well, you know, when when the oil price gets back to ninety dollars, we're we're going to pick up rigs. Well, we didn't. We dropped rigs. Why is that? Part of the reason is if you're if you're running an oil company right now, the the uh, the administration is. Every time they're on team, we're going to put you out of business. We're going to put you out of, oh, but would you produce more oil today? You know, it's, they want their cake and, and eat it too. How do you run a business uh, that way? It, it, it's tough. And uh, so the, uh, th- th- there's also, you know, kind of, and this, this might be a, a good uh, segue in the conversation to talk about how technology has changed the dynamic uh, for for shale operators to where we're producing 12.9 million barrels a day today with about 550 rigs uh, turning to the right. Now, if you go back five years, there were 1,200 rigs to produce about the same amount of oil. So what's happened is we've become much more efficient. We've applied technology uh in in a, in probably the the two we're, we're better at finding out where the oil is uh and when you're when you're planting a well particularly a horizontal well you're starting out vertical and you want to put the landing zone in the area of greatest permeability and then go out horizontally from there so we're, we're better at ai is helping us to become better at imaging uh the reservoir itself uh, and then over time, the um, the uh, the fracturing companies have gotten much better at at, at carrying out the fracturing task. You know, you, uh, if you go back a few years, uh, Liberty uh, Energy, which is one of the big independent fracking companies, 
in in the country was was doing maybe ten stages a day. Now they're doing several multiples of multiples of that, and uh, it's just you know increased efficiency. Uh, we now have super spec rigs that can walk from one location on a pad to the next, and so that's cut a lot of inefficiency out of the operation to where operators just don't need as many rigs to produce the same amount of oil. You wrote, the, you wrote a diamond article on that on oilprice.com. Uh, the article was, for listeners who want to look it up, is how technology is driving innovation in exploration and production. And I think the cool thing is you're seeing it across multiple industries and specifically yours. You know, the ability in, in healthcare, for example, you've got, there's a limit to how many images a doctor can take a look at, for example, and you learn something new every time you see those images. In your business, you know the amount of ge- the amount of data on the geology that's coming up is absolutely enormous. And when you can have a have a, use artificial intelligence to sift through that data and power through it, and compare rock formations and what they've yielded in the past, not just you know in the Permian, but maybe around the world. And you know, I, I would imagine, and you're and you're confirming that to me that the impact on successful drills and and successful um, success, successful exploration has probably been astronomical in terms of what that's added to the equation. Well, you know, and and another interesting data point, uh, there's another EIA report that comes out uh, that show. no, this is still the same report. It's the drilling productivity report that comes out monthly, and it tracks the amount of oil produced uh, per rig, and it's a very simple uh, calculation. It's total production by the number of rigs. But it what it does, it gives you a trend. And if you go back, um, recently I went back and looked like three years ago. In the Permian Basin, we were making about 1,250 barrels a day per rig. And if you come to the most recent edition of the daily, uh, the drilling productivity report, uh, we're under 1,000 barrels a day per rig. So there's a decline in the quality of the reservoirs. And that, you know, is tied into the M&A cycle that we're in as well. Is, is companies are struggling to, to, uh, to maintain output, and they're looking for the best rock to help them do that. How, how much of that rock is left in the Permian? I mean, is this, is this a resource that is um, relatively exhausted, or is there still a lot of life left? Well, estimates vary, but... Um, my own research and from uh, talking to other uh, people in the industry is we've probably got between three and five years worth of tier one drilling locations left. Now, some companies will have more because they've made timely acquisitions and increased their bank of tier one drilling locations. But in terms of you know, where we started 15 years ago and where we are now, tier one drilling locations are probably between 70 and 80 percent drilled up. And so the result for the end user is going to be there's still going to be plenty of oil and gas that comes out of there. It's just going to be a heck of a lot more expensive to get it. It is going to be more expensive because technology is not cheap. Right. Right. And I, know, I I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you another example. When when we first started fracturing, um, they were they were only drilling probably six thousand feet horizontally. Now we're drilling twelve to fifteen thousand feet horizontally. So that's that's more uh, contact with a rock 
to produce oil. Uh, when we first started fracking, we were only injecting uh, about um, 500 pounds of sand per foot of interval. Now, routinely, we're injecting 2,000. Some reservoirs were injecting 2,500. Some reservoirs up in uh, up in uh, oh the the uh, not the Denver Julesburg but the uh, uh, the Marcellus they're they're injecting three thousand pounds of sand per foot of interval. If you go if you multiply that out by you know ten thousand feet or twelve thousand feet, you know there's twenty or thirty million pounds of sand being injected. So the costs have gone up. Uh, and they're only really sustained by, you know, these higher oil prices. Now, a question for you in terms of what's going on ge geopolitically around the world right now. Um, obviously, over last weekend was when, and just for you know, future reference, we're recording this on October 12th. It'll probably be the end of October by the time we release it. But it was obviously the, the invasion into Israel that we had from Hamas. And there's questions of, you know, what Iran's involvement was. You have, I guess, the... The uh, the Ford is currently in the Mediterranean. I think the Roosevelt's on its way in. Uh, so yeah. you know who knows who knows what is going to happen when things erupt in the Middle East. I mean, last time we've in the past, you look at 1973. I think it was the Yom Kippur War, and you saw an explosion in oil prices after that. What um, now? It's it's new news for us, obviously. But what are you hearing among the people in your community in the, in the oil and gas community about? the readiness of the United States, if need be, to uh, to ramp up production, because we're also in this phase now where we've emptied the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. You know, we've got, we've got what, 17, 18 days left of fuel in this thing. It's the lowest level it's been in 40 years. Right. So what's the chatter around that among your circle? Well, the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the flare-up over in the Middle East is still, still so new that I don't know that people have really assimilated. We've seen the oil price fall off uh, pretty rapidly from that initial, you know, two or three dollar a barrel bump. Uh, is is and that's that's very typical with what happens in a belligerency type situation. People get all concerned that no, they're going to start blowing up oil rigs. Well, they don't blow up oil rigs. That, that's just just not what seems to happen. If you accept perhaps the uh, the uh, Kuwait invasion back in the early or early nineties, I guess. So um, the, uh, the 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 problem the the United States has, and as you uh, correctly point out, we've drawn down uh, our reserves. Um, global reserves are also at a very low level, so there's a thin margin of. Uh, of a uh, supply uh, immediately available uh, that's only really uh, maintained by what has been surging production here in in the U.S. You know we've been adding probably uh, you know 100,000 barrels a month for the past eight or nine months. We've gone from you know uh, around 12,000 to 12,900 uh, barrels a day. Uh, excuse me, 12 million. Had my zero in the wrong place, so it's 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 kind of a precarious situation that people people won't really know how bad it can be uh, until things do start getting blown up in the oil field. Uh, yeah, this very expensive, um, you know, architecture very difficult to replace. 
if that if that comes to pass. And the response, you know, if if we had to, if we had to add another, you know, hundred surface rigs or land rigs, we we could probably do that. But beyond that, we would be building new rigs, and nobody's building new rigs. Uh, you, when you when you read the uh, the quarterlies from the the drillers like Helmerick and Payne, uh, Patterson UTI, and you, you get into the the weeds of it. Are, are you building it? No, we're not building any rigs. We're bringing, we're we're upgrading rigs to super spec to where you know where they can walk on these pads and not have to be completely uh, demo. But uh, new rig building is at a complete uh, standstill. And uh, from a personnel aspect, it would be very difficult. Uh, to respond, you know, with the low unemployment rate right now, it's hard for the oil field to attract uh, workers. You know, they, we have such strict standards. You know, you, you can't have any anything on your driving record, any, uh, you know, any sort of violations, uh, uh, or they just can't put you in the field. So, you know, they're somewhat self-limiting in that regard. So people would, people, uh, people are a resource it's very difficult to come by. Well, let me ask you this, and you, you may or may not know the answer to this, but I'd heard something recently, and I might be wrong, by the way, but it kind of surprised me. Um, that in many cases, at least what we're paying for diesel or for or front line of gas here in the United States, that bottleneck is, is often the refiners. And my understanding is, is that most of our refineries are built to refine grades of imported oil, not necessarily what we're pumping here. Uh, and it's very obviously, you know, we we talked earlier about why would a company invest in a business you're being told to be put out of business. And, even, you know, we haven't had built a new refinery in this country since the late 1970s. Right. Even if you wanted to, we're talking you're into the billions, probably in production costs, 10 plus years minimum to get all the permitting and everything like that in place. In the event of an embargo, let's say all of a sudden, because that's really it wasn't the fact that, you know, that that. Uh, that production facilities and things were being blown up, you know, in the 1970s, the Arabs just decided they were going to do an oil embargo. What is our, in terms of our refining capacity, are we dependent on Saudi crude? Are we dependent on Venezuelan crude? Can we, can we exist on the kind of oil that we're pumping here in our own country? Well, that, that, that's a great question. I'm, I'm going to uh, pleasantly surprise you with part of the answer and then perhaps depress you with the other part of the answer. Okay. <laughs> There's never a perfect answer. Yeah. So the the problem with the crude being produced uh, from shale is it's very light gravity. It's uh, you know forty gravity and above. It's usually you know somewhere in the in the range of the mid forties, maybe even uh, to the breakover. Uh, once once you get to uh, fifty gravity, then we call it condensate. Uh, and uh, the bulk of the bulk of uh, shale oil is 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 like gravity. And for you, as you correctly point out, we haven't built refineries in decades, and they were all built to uh, to run on imported oil uh, that was uh, uh, heavier gravity. So where we do need help uh, is from uh, countries that that supply uh, heavy oil like. Our uh, Canada is it, we we are currently getting more oil from Canada than any other country. Sixty-two percent of imports come from Canada right now, 
And uh, what we're buying most of is the heavy oil sands material that's actually thinned out with uh, with uh, NGLs and and, uh, and condensate, so they can they, so they can pump it. Um, and uh, then uh, Chevron has started pulling heavy crude out of Venezuela. So you, you mix those two things in the refinery, and and you you get an optimal blend of gasoline, diesel, heavy fuel oil, jet jet fuel, and things like that. So uh, we're not as dependent on Saudi as we as we used to be, but we are dependent on imports to to get our blend stock to where our refineries can run efficiently. And what's the talk too, and, and, and diving more into the geopolitics because you're you know, the oil business is really at the center of a lot of it. You yeah. now have a lot of talk with um, you know Saudis, which used to be very firmly in our camp, are now opening a lot of channels and with China in terms of pr- perhaps pricing their oil in something other than U.S. dollars. What what, what are your thoughts on that? I know I know I'm di- I'm, t- I'm pulling you away from the engineering side of thing here, but as someone with vast experience in the business, I'm just curious what yeah. the what the chatter is around some of these issues. Well, I think it's a natural progression or maturation of of Saudi as as a a society. You know, they they they've learned over time that that raw resource suppliers usually do not reap a an appropriate share of the rewards. The the price of the oil is one thing, uh, and so they're they're looking to um, uh, broaden their their industrial base in into other areas and and uh, so you, you, I think it's only natural that uh, they reach out to other you know ge- geopolitical powers like China and Russia uh, Iran uh, because you know oil oil is is fungible they can sell it they can sell it to anybody, uh, and uh, I think it's I think it's uh, y- you know a um, y- uh, probably a sign of the the current un state of upheaval is what I'm trying to get at in the in the world order the world order is changing and uh, you know the the uh, 20th century was the American century. It remains to be seen what uh, what who will claim the the uh, the current uh, 21st century. I guess we're in now. But uh, oil oil is going to you know, and I, I guess I, I might pivot just a little bit into what is the future of oil. Yeah, that's that was you read my mind because that's where okay. I, that's where I wanted to take it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Oil, there's no scenario that I've read where we use less oil or gas in 2050 than we do now. We will use uh, 10 million barrels a day more in 2050 than we are now. And that may have you scratching your head, but green energy is going to displace all of that. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, that, that goes against the the popular narrative that that solar and wind and and all of these things are going to uh, displace oil and gas and we just won't need it anymore. Um, uh, you know, 
chemical energy is direct energy. All these other forms of energy, we're, we're taking energy and, and converting it in some fashion and you lose something uh, in the conversion. It's just simply not as efficient. It's not as reliable. For, for every solar farm you have, you put in, you've got to put in expensive batteries that, you know, in the best, in the best case I've read, um, there's this huge solar farm that's putting in, I forget how many kilowatts of battery, but it's only good for 24 hours. What do you do then? Right. Yeah. So you have to have natural gas as a backup. If you want plastics, you have to be producing uh, oil, uh, oil is uh, gasoline is 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 an optimal fuel. Diesel is an optimal fuel. People are 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 driving themselves crazy to find uh, vegetable oil based fuels to replace uh, petroleum products and burning petroleum products to produce them. I mean, it just uh, my, one of my favorite uh, uh, pet peeves is all the uh, ethanol that's produced to blend gasoline. Uh, it, it's burned using diesel anyway. Well, you bring up an interesting point, and I think the one thing, and you know, we all want clean air, and we all want clean water, and all that. But I, but I, when I look at some of the, some of these alternative energy sources that are discussed, the big exception being nuclear. <laughs> but, but uh, the input costs to generate that windmill, you know, my understanding is for a lot of these industrial sized windmills, it's seven or eight years of production that that mill ha- that 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 fan has to put out there just to compensate for what it took to mine the materials, to move it, to get it there, to build it. And the useful life of these things are nine or 10 years, you know? So, yeah. so you're kind of like, you, you might be really clean over here, but you're really dirty to get to that point. And I think that, um, I, I, you know, I think that it seems to me that, uh, that people are starting to look at maybe what, what the, the entire cost of, of some of these alternatives is. And, and if uh, I may, Warren Buffett yeah, has a great quote. You probably, you probably know this quote, but, uh, it's one of my favorites. And he was asked by someone about investing in wind farms. And he said, the only financial basis for it are the government tax credits. You take those away and it falls on a face. That's not a perfect Buffett quote, but that was essentially what he said. Without government uh, underpinning and support, there's no business case uh, for these things. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it, you're in a fascinating business, Dave, and uh, and I really appreciate you spending some time to talk to me about it today. And uh, and but please let's 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 keep and keep these lines of communication open because it's it's an obviously very changing landscape that we're in, and, and the business that you are are educating people on is a very important one. Well, thank you. It's been been my pleasure. I I'm a natural talker. I I love to hear the sound of my own voice. So I, I appreciate <laughs> you having. Having me on, Brent, it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So, Dave, you offered some really amazing insights in your industry. And and first of all, you know, if, if people want to know more about your work, because you're contrib- contributing quite a bit uh, to various different sources. I mentioned before oilprice.com. I've seen some of your stuff, I believe, on Seeking Alpha. How do people find you? Well, on Seeking Alpha, I am known as the fluids doc. As you, you recall, that my career was in fluids. And uh, so if you search Fluids Doc on Seeking Alpha, uh, you can find my work. Uh, you can then, I also have written for Oil Price over the past few years, and I publish there under my own name. So those are two places that someone could go. And I highly recommend, if you're curious about this business, 
or you want to know more about what what's going on, definitely look up Dave's work and uh, and read it for sure. You know, I, I've learned quite a bit. And uh, and Dave, I really thank you for taking time out of your day to join me. Been my pleasure, Brent. Anytime. Thanks so much. You know, thanks to you both. Uh, it, one of the most important conversations we can have today or any day actually involves energy because it is the fu- most basic fundamental commodity that is uh, necessary to life as we know it. So, Brent, thank you for facilitating that conversation today. We know how to get a hold of Mar- uh, Dave. We know how to get in touch with his work. How do we get in touch with you if we want to have a further conversation? My easiest way is uh, in terms of social media, the the only social media platform I'm on but the, that I'm most active on is LinkedIn. So you can just search me on LinkedIn. You can call us here at the office. It's on 602-255-0555. Either myself or Andy or Susan or Kayla is going to pick up the phone. they're fantastic. My team knows how to get me, get a hold of me at all times, or you can just go to mpadvisorsaz.com or smartmoneysimplified.com and you can find us online. Great. Thank you very much. And listeners, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this conversation. We hope you found it useful and informative. If you are not already a subscriber, look, hit the button. It's easy. Hit the subscribe button. Then you don't have to remember where you heard it. You don't have to remember how often he puts these episodes out. It will be delivered to you. You'll get it and you'll never miss another episode. And if you like it, we humbly ask that maybe you take some time to rate it, share it with other people, get the word out about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening on behalf of Brent and everybody at MBA Associates. Thank you for listening. And if you don't know already, you should never wait. Live your best life today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.